Bible or some device that you'll be looking at the text with us. We are going to be in a familiar passage this morning in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13. So if you've ever been to a wedding, you've read a portion of 1 Corinthians 13. Um, we have been in 1 Corinthians now for, for a couple months, um, actually several months, working our way through, and we're in a section right now that um, is, is generally, it's about worship. Um, and we've been in that really since chapter 8 when Paul began to talk to the church in Corinth about their association with idol worship. Um, we're more specifically in a section regarding spiritual gifts. Um, and in this, chapter 12 and chapter 14 highlight and focus on the gifts primarily. And chapter 13 um, kind of takes a—it's not a break. It's just a different line of argument from in the same subject. And so chapter 13 is probably one of Paul's most famous chapters. Um, it is often kind of viewed as, a, as an ode or a hymn to love. Um, it's something you will see some verses pulled out of and put on coffee mugs or on your wall or quilted on a throw pillow. It's just, it's, it's a familiar, famous passage. But this morning, it's going to be key um, that we see what's really going on here is it's not a hymn to love. Um, it, it's teaching on love. But it's not an ode to love as much as it's going to be a critique of the lack of love that is happening in Corinth. It, he's going to be showing a contrast and a critique of what has not happened. Um, if you're wondering why we entered um, kind of talking about spiritual gifts a couple weeks ago and it feels like we haven't really gotten there, we are getting there. Um, I see some of you nodding your heads already. We are getting there. Um, but that Paul really is laying a pretty strong foundation for how we would study and understand the gifts, and that love is going to be a, a huge component of our understanding of the spiritual gifts. And so I'm going to jump in real quick and read from 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It does not insist upon its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, and then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So... Again, a passage that you probably know well. You may even have a portion of it memorized. 
um, the key to our understanding of the spiritual gifts is going to be through the lens of love that Paul is providing here. Um, and, and so we have to remember where we've been in 1 Corinthians so far with the church, that there is a, there are divisions in the church. Paul, that he's addressing that, that they're following different leaders um, and in dividing the body of Christ. We've seen factions emerge. We've seen them feel like there is superiority to be gained. And so the gifts that they have, they want to lord over others. We've seen in the Lord's Supper even kind of a have and have not divide where those with things, with more money, with more ease, lord that over others who are in want and yet they're gathering as the church. That we've seen that um, some thought that they had kind of arrived spiritually. And so they were talking about, hey, we don't want to get married anymore. If we're in marriage, we want to be abstinent even in marriage because we're like the angels now. And we've arrived at this like spiritual level that is beyond human relationships and human understanding. And so Paul has been constantly going, whoa, whoa, whoa. you're not as wise as you think you are. You're not as spiritual as you think you are. You're, you're actually not really very much reflecting the character of God at all. And so he has walked through this letter looking at just behavioral issue after behavioral issue. And tongues was, and we will we'll dive into tongues and prophecy next week, um, but tongues was one of the ways that those in the church were saying, look, if, if I speak in tongues, I'm, I'm better than you. I'm more spiritual than you, was kind of the attitude that was taking place in Corinth. And so it's why in chapter 12, Paul has listed tongues at the bottom of all of his list. He's saying, yes, he's going to actually say, look, we, we want to pursue the gifts of the Spirit, but we have to understand why we pursue them and how we pursue them. That, it, that they don't reveal superiority or some sort of spiritual arrival. Um, the, 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 the signs that are a little more showy, right? He's like, you are showing them and wanting people to pay attention to you, but you're lacking love. And so he wants to now take chapter 13 here and walk them through what happens when you reveal your spirituality, when you have like the trappings of religious life without love. And he says like, because you are looking spiritual, you are looking religious, you are perceiving yourself that way, and you're presenting yourself that way, and yet love is absolutely lacking, and you don't seem that concerned about it. And so he begins with a few examples here in the first three verses. He says, so look, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, he's talking like if I'm talking in heavenly language, but if I don't have love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Right? He, he's saying like, have you known someone that was, was prominent in your life, whether it was a, maybe a teacher Maybe it was a politician, maybe it was a preacher, maybe it was a parent, but someone who was prominent and you had a perception of them that was really, really high. And then all of a sudden their character got revealed. And it was like everything that you thought you knew and all this good that was being said by them all of a sudden felt tainted and it felt dirty and you're like, ah, I don't know that I like what I'm hearing. Like, I'm having a hard time. I like your words, but... but your character makes it really hard to hear what you're talking about. Um, I, there are some theological discussions that I used to have in college and, and afterwards with people that I, I was reticent. Like, I didn't want to believe what these people were trying to teach me to believe because of their attitudes and their character. Because they were obnoxious. They were jerks, to be quite honest. And so it's like, 
even though intellectually and theologically I think I agree with your perception of Scripture, you're just a jerk. (laughs) And so it makes it really hard to think I want to jump in your camp with you. And so what, what Paul is saying is like, look, you can have the showiest spiritual gift there is and look spiritual. And if you don't love people, nobody cares. It, it's actually going to turn people away. Many of you on Sunday mornings after the service, right? You're, you're sitting here and you're visiting and Jude serenades you, right? On the drums. And he's just up here banging. And maybe it's not as brash as it could be, but it still makes it a little hard to talk, right? And then when you go to pull him off, he screams at you. And, and, right, and it's like that incessant noise in the midst of a conversation. And you're just like, man, your words are good, but the noise of this, I just can't take what you're saying to me. And so what Paul is saying, he's like, look, you are exhibiting the Spirit, but you're not showing love, and so it's not being received, it's not being heard correctly. In verse 2, if I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, he's like, if I could give you all the information... He's like, it's nothing. He goes, if I have faith to remove mountains, and this is an idiom here, the idea of having faith that can move mountains is the idea of being able to do the impossible, right? It's being able to do something that is supernatural that should not be able to be done. He's like, and if I can do these impressive things, you're not going to care if I don't love you or if I don't love people, that these matter. It's why Paul will later on say, look, there will be false teachers who will come and do impressive things. And so it's not simply by the acts of their hands. It's based on the words that they're saying and the love that they have or they don't have. They're teaching. We have to have discernment that, that power, showiness, isn't evidence of God's grace or His Spirit. It could be, but it's not automatically, right? Like that we have to be more discerning than that. Look at verse 3. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So he's saying, like, look, if, you, if you're just super generous and you're just known for being the one that gives everything away so that people will know you, but you don't actually love people, you love the praise, you love being noticed and seen as being the generous one, it's like, people know that. Right? They know what is kindness and generosity given to them and what is a handout for their sake and not for yours. And, and then he even, he, he brings in this strong contrast. He goes, because if I deliver up my body to be burned, and you're thinking, who would do that? <laughs> right? Like, who would give themselves up for someone else and it not be a loving thing? And he, what he's trying to say is, he's like, look, anything that you can do spiritually that would look to impress others, potentially even to impress God himself. But if you're not doing it out of love and out of right heart motivation, he goes, it is, it's worthless. It's nothing. And so what he is telling this church, right, who is expressing the gifts of the Spirit and is showing superiority, he's saying, you think you're being spiritual. And you think that the gifts that you have are demonstrating God's favor in your life. And you think that the gifts that you have are showing that the Spirit of God is alive and well in you. And he says, but what actually reflects the the character of God is not the gifts. It's love. That is going to show God far more than the gifts. And so what reveals the Spirit is not the gifts as much. It's not the greatest sign of the the Spirit's work in your life. It's love that would look like Christ. Now, here's the thing. Paul is not knocking the gifts at all. 
He's actually going to go into detail as to how he wants them to pursue them and to be involved with them. He's not knocking them. He's simply saying gifts without love are noise, and they're, they're more harmful than good. And what will most rightly reflect the gifts that we have and the talents that we have and the things that the Spirit gives us is if we're doing them in a loving manner. So let's look in where he continues now in verse 4. So he says, so love is patient and is kind. And then he goes through and, and gives eight terms to say what love isn't. So he says, love doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not arrogant, it's not rude, it doesn't insist upon its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. So you wonder, okay, why, why these eight? It's because they're doing the opposite of all of these. They are actually not exhibiting love. So let's, let's look at this. The very first one, he says, love isn't envious. But if you look back at chapter 3, verse 3, he says this, For you are still of the flesh, and while there is jealousy and strife among you, you are of the flesh, and you are behaving in a human way. He's, so, he's already got on them for saying, you, you are an envious people, that you're looking to hold your gifts over other people, that you're jealous for others' things and their other giftings. And he's had to remind them over and over again that all gifts are from God, all talents are from God, that he has brought them together to be a body. They're not all going to be the same. That they're looking to use societal status and pressure to hold down fellow brothers and sisters in Christ because they want to like, continue to live as the world's standard because they're envious that a working class or a former slave or a current slave would receive the same thing that they do, that there's rivalries happening. They don't like other people's success. So he's like, this isn't loving, and yes, this is what you're marked by. The second is this. He says, love isn't boasting. But if we look back at chapter 4, verse 7, and if you'll see it a lot in chapters 1 and 2 as well, we see this for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why are you boasting as if you did not receive it? Right? They're continually boasting in their knowledge and in their wisdom and their superior spirituality. And they're boasting in, well, I'm a man of Paul. Well, I'm a man of, right? like of which leader they're following. They're boasting as a means of separating themselves. So he's like, look, you are envious. It's not loving. You're boastful. It's not, it's not loving. The, in the boasting, it's, it's those who are saying, look at the gift that I have. I'm prophetic. Or I speak in tongues. Or I'm a really good speaker. What, whatever it is, they're going, look at what I have for my attention just so that you'll think highly of me or better of me. Maybe I can even create envy in you. The third one, not just envy or boastfulness, but arrogance. Says that love is not arrogant. But again, if we look back at chapter 4, verse 6, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you would be puffed up in favor of one against the other. In verse 18 of chapter 4, some are arrogant as though I were not coming back to you. Right? He's saying, like, many of you are puffed up, you're arrogant, you're, and what this is talking about here is it's attention-seeking. It's like you're looking for people to know you, to be impressed with you. 
right? Honestly and unfortunately, this marks the church a lot still today. That there would be those who would look to build a platform that they would be known, that they could put themselves up on an elevated level that you would be impressed with them. And so you'll hear people say how close they are to a certain celebrity Christian, which should be an oxymoron, right? Or how close they are, like I, I sat in his Sunday school class, well, I've been in his church, well, I'm friends with him, right? And, and they're looking to get close because they're boasting in this, puffing themselves up, wanting you to be impressed that you either know this person or maybe you're setting yourself because you want to be that person. That it's arrogance of wanting people to think that you're important and be impressed with you, that you want attention to be put on you rather than on Christ. And so he's just walking through and he's saying, look, you are these things, you are envious and you are boastful and you are arrogant. The fourth one, rude, right? That love isn't rude. We've seen this throughout and this idea is that it would dishonor others. They have dishonored a good portion of the church at the Lord's Supper. Right? Like they've just said, you don't get to eat the good stuff. You don't get to drink the good drink. You don't get to sit at the, at the good table. We're separating ourselves out. We're dishonoring one another. You are humiliating others by showing what they do not have. You're treating them in shameful ways. The fifth, ins- insisting on your own way. Right? It's selfishness. Again, we see this at the meals, that you know there had to be some conversation around the Lord's Supper going, hey, should, should we not all eat together? Nah, I like it like this, right? Because I'm at the good table. I'm at the, I'm at the front of the table. I'm insisting upon my own way. I'm selfish about this. The next, irritable. The love is not irritable. The idea here is not easily angered. And because there are divisions in the church, because there are factions that have merged, right, that people are going to be quick to be defensive in defending their position, and they're going to be irritable and easily angered. The seventh, resentful. Um, the idea of resentful here is one who is recording wrongs. And if you remember in chapter 6, Paul writes to them saying, don't go to like secular court to, to work out your grievances towards each other. Don't keep this record of wrongs so that you can hold it over someone's head when, when you finally have them, right? Oh, do you remember what you did? Right? You're being resentful. You're, you're contemplating evil towards someone else. And so he's like, this is even, he's not even getting at that you've done evil. He goes, it's that you want to do evil towards them. And so you're just going, right? I'm going to hold on to this one for a little while. <sighs> yeah. That one and this one together, I'm going to get you, right? And, you, and we think if we do this, right, in relationships, we're like, I probably should say something because I'm not really upset, but that was kind of a big deal. But I'm just going to hold on to it until I get, like, I can, like, tack it to your wall and you're just guilty. And you have to, like, capitulate to me. And then the last is this, is rejoicing at wrongdoing, that love doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing, And again, he has talked so much of justice and of their care for one another. He's like, how can we be rejoicing, calling something the Lord's Supper, calling something worship, when we are hurting our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Right? When when we're harboring sin in the church, when we are suing one another outside in secular courts like that we can't deal with our own issues. It's like you're rejoicing at the sin that's overtaken you. 
And so here they are, believing that they are superior. They think that they're better than Paul in a lot of ways, that they're more articulate and more spiritual, and they're, they're not sure if they want Paul's leadership. Right? And, and he's like, but look at what you've done. You say that you are loving Jesus and reflecting his character and that you are superior and spiritual. And he's like, and you are envious and boastful and arrogant and rude. You're insisting upon your own way, selfish. You're irritable, resentful. You rejoice in wrongdoing, and you cover it all with religious activity to say, but I speak in tongues. Like that that covers it. All right. So if, if we're not careful here, it's where we begin to like pull out our rocks, right? And we're like, man, you Corinthians are dumb, right? Like you had Paul as your church planner. Like how did you mess this up so bad? Like, you're one generation removed from Christ. Like, what is wrong with you? But how do we fail at this? Right? We think about, think about people that you just, like, forget others. Think about people you actually like, okay? We're not going to decide who that is. But people that you like, right? People that you love. So maybe family, maybe not, right? <laughs> Siblings, maybe, maybe not, right? Coworkers. Um, neighbors, friends, right? Like the, wh- whichever category that you have some folks, you're like, yeah, I like them. I love them. And how often, though, are we actually envious, even with people we like? Are we boastful, wanting them to think more highly of us? That we're arrogant, that we're rude, that we insist upon our own way. My kids never do that, Right? <laughs> that we're irritable, that we're resentful, that we would rejoice in wrongdoing. And yeah, maybe we don't do all of these things, but I think about how often at bedtime, um, how irritable I can get with my children. And I love them, right? And I'm like, just stay in there. Like, don't, I don't want to see your face again. I want to hear your voice again. Right? Like, just stay in there, right? And like, and I, and I, I actually like them, <laughs> And yet I can be irritable. I can insist upon my own way. And I'm not, look, we're not talking about discipline right now, right? But if we think about our family relationships, our friend relationships, we realize that we don't love well constantly. We just, we just don't. And that's with people that we like. But now look back at verse 4. He gives us two things that love is. Paul says love is patient and love is kind. Right? And you're like, oh, that's nice, patient, kind. But, but Paul is opening up something so much bigger here. When he says patient, here's the idea that he's bringing. This is from Romans 2, verse 4. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? If you remember in Exodus, where we were a few months ago, in chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, so this is God speaking about himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. If you think about in, in 2 Peter 3, where it says, the Lord is not slow to come as mankind thinks of him as slow, but it's that he doesn't desire for any to perish. And in Jonah, what is the critique that Jonah has of God? I'm going to go talk to Nineveh, and you're going to forgive them because that's what you do. 
When it says that love is patient, it is talking about the very character of God that would say that we are rebels and enemies and that we are opposed to him and we abhor him and yet he has not destroyed us all. That when humanity turned against him, that he has shown patience in hopes that we would repent. Right? That at the right time that Jesus stepped into human history to redeem us and to rescue us, to show us once again the character of God, to remind us of who He is, that we would say, yeah, that. That I would repent and, and come back to Him. And so God's patient. Like He is saying, I am loving with those who do not deserve my patience. Right? And we, we get a bare, like just a tiny glimpse of this, right, in our human relationships. That there are people that you're patient with who don't deserve it, and yet you do it because you love them and you hope that they'll return. And yet God has done it with humanity who were his enemies. The second is this, is that love isn't just patient, but love is kind. And so patience is a little bit like passive, like it's, it's his willingness to like hold back wrath so that we would repent. His kindness is his active like pursuit and love towards us. It's John 3.16 right? That God sent his son into the world because he loved us. This is the idea of Ephesians 2 that says that we are walking in the course of the world like in allegiance with the, with the enemy, but God by his grace, right? This is Romans 5, 8, where it says that God demonstrated his love for us at the cross when we were at our worst, It's It's the love and the kindness of God shown to us. It's, we see this in Titus Three, verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God and Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so the love is patience of God not giving us what we deserve, but it's also kindness of Him giving us more than we deserve, of Him pursuing us to restore us to make us right. It's, it's God demonstrating it. And so here's the thing. This morning, if we were merely able to say, God loves you. Why? Because the Bible says so. Why? Because God wrote down, I love you. You'd be like, ah, does he really? But God demonstrated his love in that he sent his perfect son on our behalf to live the life we were supposed to live. Not only that, that he was mocked and beaten and humiliated and wrongfully accused and wrongfully convicted and murdered to satisfy the wrath of God as he has been patient with us, right? And then he beat sin and Satan and death and lives again. And so when we say God loves us and we say, how do you know? Because of the cross, Because Jesus came and did what we could not do to make us right with the Father. He has demonstrated it. So when you ask your kids or you ask your spouse or you ask your friend or you ask your parents, why do you love me? They don't usually just say, well, because I do. Right? Like they they can show ways that they have demonstrated their love towards you because love is both words and actions. And so if we look at this list, we realize that we are far more like the Corinthians that we are envious and boastful and we are selfish and irritable. But the love of God is both kind and patient. And get this, we're trying to talk about being loving towards people we like, that we love. God did it towards his enemies, towards those who would spit in his face and war against him and say, not your throne, my throne, not my Lord, I'm my Lord. 
They have warred against him, and he has brought them into his family, those who hated him and made them sons and daughters. And so we, church, like the church in Corinth, are called to live, to reflect love like this. And here's the thing. It is utterly counterintuitive. Because to not insist upon our own way, to not be boastful, to not be envious, to not be arrogant, right, is, is, feels weak. And it feels foolish. Like the only way to advance in the world is to put ourselves out there. And I've got to shine my light brighter than your light. And I've got to try to extinguish your light. And I've got, you, you need to see how great I am so that I can be powerful and successful. And then God will be honored as I'm a Christian celebrity. Right? And what he says is, no, no, no. It's not, about, it's not about the gifts that I give. It's not about success. It's not about power. It's about love. And it's about loving like I did. And that's going to look weak and it's going to look foolish because it looked foolish when Jesus went to the cross like we lost. Because he could have just snapped his finger and won. But he did the loving thing for us because he was bringing us back into the family. He did what appeared weak. And so to love like Christ loves is going to look weak and foolish and counterintuitive to the world. Church, he's going to call us to seek the gifts, to live out how God has knit us together and wired us in the things that the Spirit is going to do that will show the power and supernatural ways of God. We are going to do that, but only in light of love. Only if they are filled and fueled by love and building up the body, not for our own glory. And so it ends, look at verse 8, the last section here. So love never ends. And so then he goes on, so as for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they'll stop, they'll cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. But he says, so like love doesn't, but these gifts of God do. What is he talking about? When Jesus splits the sky and comes back for us, when like human history as we know it ceases to be and eternity begins in all fullness, we won't need preaching anymore because we're going to have the word with us. Right? We won't need missions anymore because everyone's either going to have aligned with Jesus or they're going to have been separated from him forever. Right? Like we won't need evangelism anymore because like Jesus will have said, here I am and every knee will bow, either in allegiance or in fear. And so many of the actions and the deeds and the things that we spend our life doing which are right and obedient will one day have an end. There will be a period and they will cease. I will not preach in heaven. And it's not because there's better preachers than me, right? Because, I mean, there are, but none of us are preaching in heaven, <laughs> right? Talk about arrogance. Um, it's that there won't be preaching. And so what he's saying is like, look, you're holding on to your tongues or your prophecy or your gifts and saying, like, look at me. And he's saying, the one thing that will last will be love. Our love for one another and our love for God and all of our skills and our talents and our giftings will fade away when Jesus returns because we'll have what it is we've worked for and what we've longed for and what we've needed. What this means then is we have to check our motives. Why do you read your Bible? Is it just to have answers? Is it just so that people will be impressed? Is it just so that if you're asked, people won't think that you're not spiritual? Or is it to meet with Jesus? Because there's one thing that will last forever, and that's being with Jesus. You won't need to right, impress people. You won't need to have the answers because eventually we'll have Jesus with us. And so look, reading your Bible gains you answers. 
And it gains you understanding. It gains, it changes your character, and it transforms us. But why are you doing it? Why do you come on Sunday mornings? Why do you go to gospel community? Is it so that people will think, ah, he's a decent dude? Or is it because you want to worship? Because that's what we're going to do for eternity is we're going to make much of Jesus. That will not cease. That will not stop. Our worship will not. Our activity will. And so here's the thing. If I only prepare to preach so that I'll get a paycheck or so that you'll think highly of me or so that I can put myself in a position to then do what I really want to do, like that will all come to light. Because there will be a day where preaching will not be needed. But if I preach because I love Jesus and I want to reflect his love and I want to love people, right now I'm using the gift that God has given for the reason he's given it, and I'm doing it with the motivation and the heart that he wants. That's what Paul is trying to get them to see is don't stop doing the gift that you have, but you have to do it out of love. And here's what love is. So church, the question this morning is, do you love him? Do you enjoy him, or do you love the praise and the attention you get for how he has gifted you? That that's really what you love, and so you continue to put yourself out there. He then ends with, by saying like that, like that love is the one that will last prior to that. He gives a couple of examples of, of, of how this will pass away. He goes, look, so now we know um, in part when he steps in, the partial will pass. This is verse 10. Like, we're going to see him. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. Here's what he's saying. When you're a kid and you act like a kid, that's appropriate. Right? Because that's what kids do. He's like, but when I became a man, I gave up my childish ways. So he's saying right now, preaching necessary. The gifts of the Spirit, these things are necessary. But when Jesus steps back into history, splits the sky, those things... It's like we've grown up. We don't need them anymore because we have the perfect example of them. We, we don't need the, the mere images of them. For now, we see in a mirror dimly. We see a reflection of it. We don't see the, the actual thing, but then face to face. It's the difference in holding up a picture and saying, this is, this is my wife and seeing my wife. Like we're seeing Jesus, but then we will see him face to face. It will no longer just be a picture Or a mirror dimly reflected. Now I know in part, and then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest is love. And here's why he says that. We have hope right now that Jesus is returning for us. Or we have hope right now in eternity that if we die before he returns, that we'll be with him. Like that there's a place and that he's prepared it. We have faith that in the midst of difficulties and circumstances that don't go the way we want, and in the midst of suffering, that he has not left us, he's not forsaken us, right? Faith anchors us through the circumstances of life. We hope in what will one day be. But when we either die and go to be with the Lord, or he comes for us, we won't have to have faith anymore because we'll have him. We won't have to hope that that will happen anymore because it will have happened. But we will continue to love him. So right now, we need faith, and we need hope, and we need love. But love is the one that will endure forever. So I want us to end this morning with just a couple of quick thoughts. Uh, we, I think we have to ask, do we love him? Or do we just love the idea of him? Do we love the attention that we get from being a Christian? 
Or do you actually enjoy Jesus? Second is this. Have you received this love? Like, have you been, has the love of God been demonstrated to you? Because you cannot reflect the love of God if you haven't received the love of God. And to know that it's out of the overflow of the, the, the love that has been given to you and demonstrated to you that you are able to love and demonstrate it to others. And so, if you haven't received this love, you're going to have a really hard time attempting to, to emulate it. Church, we are called to, to be known for our love for each other, but also to the world. And the church is not really known for that right now. Right? In general, we don't think of the church and go, man, they love people so good. Right? The world kind of goes, man, the church hates us a whole lot. Look, we're not called to, to throw away truth. Right? But we are called to, in love, share truth and to pursue people. So when I think about my kids, like, I don't go, because I love you, do whatever you want. Right? That's not love. I stop them from doing certain things for their own sake because that's the more loving thing to do. It is not wrong for us to say to someone, that's not okay. That's not right. But are we going to be a clanging gong that the message gets missed completely because we don't really appear to be very loving at all, even though we have a true thing? Or are we going to love people with truth? Right? So my kids, it, they matter, like the tone that I bring and how I bring it, even if I'm saying the right thing. Paul has told them, you're speaking spirit in tongues, you're doing the spiritual gifts, but it's not loving, and so it's not being received with any intent that you want. Church, our temptation probably is to be, is to be theologically accurate and correct, but to not love. Are we willing to, to have truth but also just to love, right? So that the message is actually heard and actually received, that we're, we're willing to walk with people and to, to know them, to not be boastful or envious or irritable, but instead to be patient as they are our enemies currently, right? To be patient as Christ was patient with us and also then to actively demonstrate love in the midst of our patience, reflecting the character of Jesus. What Paul wants them to know before he moves into chapter 14, talking of tongues and prophecy, is this, that the lack of love in the church of Corinth was obvious, and they somehow were missing it because they thought the spiritual gifts were enough. The gifts do not make up for. The power of God through the gifts do not make up for the love of God that was lacking. Church, we want to be a people who are known, yeah, for truth, but also for love, for one another, for the world, and ultimately for our King. This morning, as the band comes up, we're just going to invite you, right, to sing and to worship the thing we'll get to do for eternity to our King. Thank Him for the love that He has demonstrated towards you as you think about the fact of how big of a fool you've been. Right? If you're going, I'm not sure that I've received that love, man, there'll be some men and women in the back that would love to talk to you about that. If you're struggling to believe that God loves you right now, man, would you grab someone? Let them just encourage you with the truth of Scripture, of who God is and His character.
if the Spirit is convicting you of areas where you are not currently loving, that you would confess that and make it right, and not just in your own mind, but with those that you have not been loving towards. That we would let these things begin to like flow through us, that we would rightly demonstrate the love of God to one another and into the world that we live. Let's pray. Father, Scripture tells us in 1 John that quite simply, you're love. Like, that you are love. So, Lord, it is so, can feel so cliche and so easy to say that you love us. Lord, this morning, would we just for a moment consider the fact that the holy, perfect God of the universe loves us. When we think about what we've done even this morning, let alone this week, let alone this month, this year, or our life, that you love us and that you have demonstrated it. God, would we not believe that we have to love well in order for you to love us, but that we get to love because you have first loved us, that you do it first and then we respond in kind. Father, would you help Lord, just split motivations in our heart so that we would know whether we're doing it because we just like applause and the approval of man or whether we really just want to honor you. God, would we not simply assume that everything we do is rightly motivated or that it's even loving? But God, we want to clearly show you to our community and to our area and to our world. Father, thank you that you don't call us or ask us to do this perfectly, but that you give us your Holy Spirit to to process this and to transform us over our life. But Lord, thank you that we do see it perfectly in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm. Stand or sit with us.